You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous, of, of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you your true who will entrust to you the true riches and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money the pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. The word of the Lord. Pat was very well read. Very well read. I forgot where I was for a minute. I was like, I felt like I was with Jesus just now hearing this for the first time. Okay, I'm back. I'm back from Galilee. It was a nice trip. I enjoyed myself while I was there. We're in the middle of a series called Health and Holiness. Health and Holiness. And what we're trying to accomplish in this series as we move toward the end of the Christian year and the beginning of Advent is we're trying to reimagine what health and holiness looks like. And the church, the local church, 
should be on the leading edge of helping the world around us reimagine what relationships look like, what marriage is supposed to look like, what faithfulness is supposed to look like, what finances are supposed to look like, what entertainment is supposed to look like, what saying no to something that we want that might even be good but we've already had too much looks like. You know what I'm saying? Am I covering enough here? We're supposed to be showing people what Jesus' life looks like. But teaching cannot break the spell that is over our culture right now. Honest to God, teaching can't even break the spell that's over some of us. It is the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can break our enchantment to things we should not be enchanted by. We have to not just listen for information. As Randall Worley said a long time ago, we have to listen for the sound of Christ crucified. When we hear the sound, the apocalyptic end times sound of Christ crucified, we have a different imagination. It doesn't take willpower to change our life. We need new imaginations. We need to learn to see the stuff that we're in every day differently. And when I say end times, if you remember our series on summer apocalypse, I don't mean end times like Jesus is coming back anytime soon. I'm happy that he's here right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? When I say end times, what I mean is the hope that the things in me that fight against the things of Jesus are in the end times. I hope that the things of this world that are warring against the knowledge of Christ, I pray that those things are in the end times, that the end is near for that which demolishes the things of the kingdom and keeps trying to build Babel again and again and again. Because the end times are also the beginning of new and refreshing times. That's for a different topic. We will get to that in Advent. But right now, health and holiness. What is health? One way that I want to describe health is health is living in the truth of your moment. Please, in the name of Jesus, write that down. <laughs> health is living in the truth of your moment. We live everywhere but in the truth of our moment. And it's one of the reasons why we deal with local lostness in ourselves, in God, even in others, is because we refuse to accept what is happening now and start there. It shouldn't be happening. Different things should be happening. If they didn't do this to me, if I didn't do this to them, then, 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 then. Stop now and say, this is what's happening. Because health is living in the truth of the moment. Holiness is realizing Jesus is living in it with you. Health is living in the truth of the moment, and holiness is realizing that Jesus is living there with you. Why is that holy? Because once you really believe that, then we can bring that truth to bear in the lives of others who are afraid to tell the truth about their moment. We can calm that fear and remind them that Jesus is living in the truthiness of their moment. We worship him in spirit and in, we bear the spirit in holiness, and we bear the truth in health. Health and holiness. The book of Revelation tells us in all of its imagery of what the kingdom of heaven and Jesus and the church are called to be, it tells us that a river of life is sourced in the sanctuary and it flows out of the sanctuary and it floods the streets of the nations. 
And it says that on either side of this river of life that flows from the sanctuary, on both sides is the tree of life. Now, how many trees were in the Garden of Eden? How many trees are in the New Jerusalem? See, in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the kingdom of heaven, when the river flows from the sanctuary, read Ezekiel, read Revelation. Don't be afraid of these texts. They help us reimagine life. And what is flowing out of here is watering the tree of life only. Because God doesn't water the trees of judgment. God doesn't water the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is when we size people up based on what we think they're doing right and wrong. He doesn't water that tree. He only waters the tree of life. The tree that says, come all who are thirsty and drink without price. It doesn't say come all who are thirsty and drink if you've been moral today. It doesn't say, come all who are thirsty and drink if you've been dating the right way. Thank God. It says, come and drink from this water, and those things in your life that are out of joint will be healed. Drink first. Behaviors change second. That is health and holiness, Salem. We are to leave here and be the river of life and be the tree of life for the world around us. We are not called to leave here and be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for everybody. We're not here. It is not given to us to have the grace to go out there and size everybody up with what is right and what is wrong in their life. It is our job to be rivers of living water that when they drink of it, they will float back down the river of life into this place and be confronted by a God who might be against them, but be against them for them. Because he's always against those things in us that are against him, but he's never against us. He's only ever the enemy to the things in you that are enemy to him, but he's never an enemy to you. He will destroy everything in you that wars against him and leave you safe and sound in the process. This is what he does. This is what it means to be judged. And this is who we're supposed to be. We are supposed to leave here as refreshing rivers of water and trees of life, reminding the world of good news. They are saved in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come and meet a person who told me everything I ever did and still gave me water anyway. Amen, Pastor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Last week, the beginning of health and holiness was talking about witnessing. And just to quickly review, witnessing begins with hospitality. Room in yourself. Room in our church. And room in our homes for people who are tax collectors. Have you ever met anybody who's taxing on your patients? Have you ever met anybody who taxes your fatigue? When you're done hanging out with them, you feel like you had to pay stuff you didn't owe. You're supposed to have room in your heart, in this church, and in your home for people that tax you. Isn't that great? We're supposed to have room in our heart, in our church, and in our homes for sinners. People who are doing things wrong should have room for themselves in your life, 
in your home, and in this church, and we said it last week. Why? Because we never reduce a person to the size of their sin. There's so much more than that. I will wait for that to register, because if it doesn't, we're not being Christian. We do not reduce people to the size of their sin. We expand people to the size of God's love, mercy, and grace for them. And honestly, start with yourself there too. It's not just we love our neighbor as, but the problem is we reduce ourselves to the size of our sin. And Jesus is constantly trying to, like we hear prophecies like he's going to extend your tent pegs. doesn't mean he's going to give you more money. It means he's going to give you more room in yourself to receive God's mercy and grace. To realize that God's banner over you hovers not just over you and the good you've done, but it hovers over everything and changes all of it. Because the bad you've done needs just as much transformation as the good you've done. It all needs to be remade in the image of Christ. Amen, Pastor. Thank you. You can stop saying amen now. This is not about that. And there also needs to be room in our heart and in our church and in our homes for people who grumble. I know. I know for a fact nobody in this room complains about anything the church ever does. And, and, and I have never once thought of any of you as grumblers. And I've never grumbled about you or the way you do or don't respond back to me while I'm preaching. I've never done this in my entire life. Lord, forgive me for lying. You know? But we have, but you've had, I've grumbled about you, but you know why I love you? Because you have room for me anyway. Thank you. Thank you, that one of you who wasn't even Jacqueline. (laughs) We have to have room in our life for people who tax, for people who sin, for people who grumble. Because if we don't have room in our life, who will have room for them? If they can't be healed in this place, where will they be healed? If the church rejects you until your lifestyle matches up, who would ever be allowed in here? So our witness begins with hospitality. We witness from the fact that we need to be found ourselves every single day. Every day of my life, I wake up lost. Do you want to know how I know that's true? Because there's new mercies every morning. Which means every morning, my lost behind needs to be found again. And he's waiting there for me to, for him to find me, for me to find myself in him, for me to find my own self. Every morning, his mercies are there because every morning I need to be found again. We should never wake up assuming we're found. That is such lostness, it's not even funny. Have you ever heard a man say, I'm lost, I need to find directions? You haven't. We are so lost, especially when we don't think we need to ask for directions. I have sent people, so there's probably people still trying to find a gas station from like 2010. Just answer the, do you know how it is? Yeah, you're just going to head down there, a couple lefts, make a right-hand turn, you'll find somebody else who will know. So Jesus brings us to our next topic. Our first topic was witnessing, and it connects to this topic of generosity that Jesus is talking about today. Our witnessing will only witness to good news if our hearts are broken from the spell of wealth. Every three years, this darn parable shows up. But we are all, everybody say all. We are all enchanted 
by wealth and what it means to have more and what it means to have options, and what it means to have choices, and what it means to have people under us. And if you say, well, I don't want to ever have anybody under me, yeah, you do, because you love when you get promoted. We say things like, I want to go to another level, but you can't have another level unless there's levels under you. You can't get promoted unless there's somebody who's not. The Giants can't beat the Panthers today unless the Panthers lose. There has to be, oh, by the way, last week, come on. Woo! Had a bit of a heart attack. I had three heart attacks during that game. The third one was bad, but anyway. Now I'm set up for pure heartbreak because now I'm expecting a win. I didn't even get upset last week. I just said we're going to lose the entire time, texting all my, hey, pastor, we're going to win. No, we're not. Pastor, he's going to miss this kick. No, he's not. And then that happened. I'm like, oh, we're going to win next week. And that's when I went wrong. Pray for my soul today. All right. But we like having people under us because that means we've moved up. That's why everybody was offended in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard when the ones who worked all day got paid the same as the one who worked an hour. Because we want more for what we do, and we specifically want more because we've done more than someone else has done. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Spirit ending. We have lived so long in such a broken world that we want to have people under us so that we could have more and then feel better about our more because we get to give it to those who have less. This is just real talk. We want to have people who don't have as much money as us because we want to have an excessive amount of money and we need people who don't have as much so we could say, I'm just blessed to be a blessing. But what happens if, like in the book of Acts, we all had the same amount of money? The spell of wealth would be broken. Those who took manna, the ones who had large families took more. The ones who had small families took less, and there was none left over. And if they tried to have any left over, it bred worms. Who wants to have worms? Who goes fishing? Well, some people want to have worms. Savage, you probably want to have worms. The laborers, we should get paid more than them. I'm going to talk to you about this parable at the end because my wife has given us one of the greatest, I think, the only way to read the story of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell it now because it sets the whole tone for how we're going to interpret this parable. I'm driving the car at Jacqueline. We're talking about the laborers in the vineyard because for us, romantic talk is Bible talk. Our love language is weird. It's fine. One time at like 9.30 at night, I got a text from a married couple in this church and they said, Pastor, uh, the husband's like, Pastor, I'm lying in bed with my wife, and we're talking about Adam and Eve. Can you please fix uh, this disagreement we're having? And I'm like, bro, I love the fact that that's what you guys talk about at night. That's incredible. That's real romance. So we're talking, and Jacqueline's saying, what do you think this parable means? And I'm talking about, you know, 
when you make an agreement, you got to follow through your agreement. If you say you'll work all day for X amount of money, then you got to work. This is an issue of our character. It's an issue of the reasons why we work. Do we work for what we get paid or do we work because work itself is what Jesus is doing and it's good whether or not you get paid the what you think you should get paid. And I'm going through all this stuff and I think I was saying some pretty good stuff. And whenever Jacqueline says right away, nice, I know she has something better. So she's sitting there. And she actually, actually, I just heard Theo yell out there. She actually starts welling up with tears. And I was like, oh, God, my interpretation is not the good one. She says, it hit me recently what I think this parable is about. At the very end, the, ma- the, the owner of the vineyard leaves, and he goes and gets other people, and they go in at, like, noon, and then he gets other people at 3. And then he goes and gets somebody at 4 or 5. Will you just come work an hour? But when he meets those guys, he says, why are you still here? Why have you been idle all day? Because that's what we think they're doing. We think they've just been lazy. We think they've just been idle. And in the parable, Jesus asks it that way to show us the questions we ask of people who we think don't work hard enough. And they say to the master in the parable, no one hired us. And Jacqueline said, they are clearly the kinds of men who it's easy to drive by because they don't look like people who could work well in a vineyard. They don't have the physical attributes that other people who get picked first for the team have. Remember that kid who got picked last for kickball? And then like he got chosen to be on a team? And people were like, okay, fine we'll have Bill be on our team. It's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling. And they say, no one hired us. And it's because, look at us, we're not hireable. Maybe there was a physical deformity. Maybe they looked small and and weak. And she said, I think this parable is about how Jesus hired them and gave them a full day's wage just because nobody else would have. Don't need to ever preach on that parable again. That's the answer. When we have that as our framework, what is that framework? That framework, what I stepped in, the trap of the parable that I fell into was that I always read it from the perspective of the most powerful person in it, and I assume that's me. And I never read it from the shoes of somebody who has far more issues than I have. So I want to look at this parable from the perspective of two people. This quote-unquote dishonest manager who it turns out is not dishonest at all. You ready for that? That's going to be fun. And from the people who were so under the thumb of the rich man that they owed things they could never pay back. This parable is primarily about the stewarding of possessions. And look what it comes after. It comes after the parable of the lost sheep, shepherds who had, a, who had possessions, and a shepherd who was willing to risk 99% of what he owns to go find 1%. That is somebody who the world would say, you are reckless, cut your losses, let the one sheep go and keep the 99% that you have. And he's saying, I'm willing to risk all of my possessions to go get the smallest amount back. The world calls it reckless. The kingdom calls it generosity. Story of a woman who 
lost a coin. And then right after that, the story of a father who lost two sons, one who came home and the other who refused to come into the house. Why? Because they were upset about their inheritance. Three stories of possessions lead up to this. But here's the clue. When Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep, he's talking to people who aren't his disciples. When he gives the parable of the lost coin, talking to people who aren't his disciples. When he gives the parable of the prodigal son, talking to people who aren't his disciples. But as Julian so eloquently read, Luke 16 verse 1, he then said to the disciples... So this parable is a parable for the church because if the reimagining of wealth doesn't happen here, it will never happen anywhere else. Jesus speaks in such a way that the end result is those who were lovers of money ridiculed him. So I will say this, and then we will get right into what it means. We did not interpret this parable the right way if the part of us that loves money isn't mad by the end of the sermon. Yeah, yes, this is the best. I should have invited my friends. This parable, that verse 14 is the clue for how to understand it. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This parable is not taught right if it doesn't offend our American sensibilities of what it means to have wealth. Today is one of my best friend's birthdays, Father John Paul Robles, who is the pastor of Sacred Commons Church in Youngstown, Ohio. Happy birthday, JP. And he has a quote that is one of the greatest preaching quotes I've ever heard in my life. And he says this. He says it to me all the time. He says, Bill, our sermons are not truthful if the poor disagree with us. I'm going to let that sit for a minute. What we say is not true if the poorest among us disagree. If the wealthiest among us agree with us, then we are not talking about the gospel anymore. If the poor say, I needed to hear that, you just preach the gospel. As Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. So if the part of us that loves wealth is tintillated by a sermon, it might not have been a great one. It might have been an awesome TED Talk, though, but not a great sermon. But if the poverty in us or the impoverished among us say, I like that, we're getting closer to the truth. Isn't this exciting? This is really good. This is going to sell tapes. Here we go. Matthew 23, 23. We're just setting the table here. Jesus says to the, yes, I said tapes. Jesus said to the, I'm a 90s kid. He says, woe to you. Remember Walkman when you put the tape in? You got to hear that sound? I loved that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Here's the punch. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. If you tithe 10% of your money to the church, if you tithe 10% of your gross 
to the church, but you're not showing mercy and justice when you leave, you're not a tither. And if you're trying to show mercy and justice when you leave, but you're not tithing, you're not showing mercy and justice when you leave. Oh, don't get mad at me for it. Somebody far more important than me told me to say this, and he put it in Matthew 23, 23. What completes the picture, this is how powerful money is. This is why money should scare us. Because money is so powerful that the more we hold on to it, the less merciful we are even when we think we're being entirely merciful. We cannot show acts of mercy but have it be merciful if we're not also generous with our finances. The giving of money and being just and equitable and merciful are hand in hand. They complete each other. It's, it's plug and socket. We can't pick one. He says it. These you ought to have done, mercy and justice, without neglecting the others, tithing. Well, I don't know if I can afford to tithe. I don't know if you can afford not to. It's what Jacqueline said to me 18 years ago. I can't date you if you're not tithing because I can't trust somebody who holds on to their stuff that tightly. If you can't offer your money to the Lord, you'll never be able to offer me or our children to the Lord one day. A person who can't let go of their money, especially into the household of God, is hard to trust. This is a difficult message. And if you're getting all ruffled inside, the Pharisee in you doesn't like this. Generous with our money. Here we go. He says, you can't serve God and you, or money. You have to serve one or the other. You can't serve both. You cannot serve God and money. Do you notice a clue here? You cannot serve God or, and, mon- or, and money. You can serve one or the other. But do you notice in both instances we're only the servant, never the master? You can serve God or you can serve money, but you are never called to be the master. And we want money so that we can gain mastery over our future, over our present, over our children's future, and over other people. The pursuit of wealth is the pursuit of the master. The pursuit of ownership is the pursuit of the master. As Chris Green said, and he, he, he resolves a lot of this tension when he was here a few weeks ago, he said, having a lot of money is not blessed. It's fortunate or it's privileged, but it's not a blessing. It's only a blessing if you lived with it in a blessing sort of way. You have to exchange the system of money by offering it to those who don't have or those who don't deserve because then you change the currency. But he says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. What the heck is he talking about? We've misread the verse. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. It sounds like he's saying, get money in shady ways and give it to somebody, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is all wealth is unrighteous. Does somebody have a dollar bill on them right now? Somebody have a dollar bill on you? Hold it up in the air. Come on, somebody's got money in this church. Come on, we're doing okay. 
Just, just somebody hold up. Does anybody care? Here we go. There we go. Some money. Here's the thing. You ready? Let's just start with this. The bill you're holding is already a lie because it is not backed by the gold it says it is. It's already not truthful. It's, it's, it's a symbol that we all trust, which is a huge problem. But it's already a lie. And here's the other thing about unrighteous wealth. It never does what it promises to do. If you have a lot of it, you could still be one step away from suicide. Or maybe closer to it. And if you don't have any of it, you know what it's like to suffer in ways that other people will never have to. It damages you if you don't have it, and it can damage you if you do. It's unrighteous wealth. That's why Jesus says, be faithful with what isn't yours, the unrighteous wealth, so that God can entrust you with true riches, which is the presence of God. Oh, man, we've looked at this transactionally and said, okay, so if I can trust God with $10, then he can give me 100 and if I trust him with a hundred, then he could give me a thousand. And if I trust him with a thousand, oh man, I could have that car. Go preach that message in central India and see how they feel about it. We act like, as Americans, we're the only people who read the Bible, and everyone else's life is just like ours. We were in India, and a man got up and preached a prosperity gospel to the poorest people I have ever seen in my entire life. And after he was done, Matthew Thomas put some of us in the bus that we drove there in and went back into the church for about 30 minutes and came out. And Pastor Mark said, what was that about? And he said, I had to go and undo everything that man said. Because none of that works here. We should only preach gospel messages that work for everyone, everywhere, and every when. Again, this isn't going to sell tapes. Atrax. Wow. I love how diverse we are in all the ways. We've got people here from every generation. The way we handle the dishonest wealth that we have, the money we make, the money we save, the money in our retirement, if you're fortunate enough to have one, that money is unrighteous wealth. We're not going to be spending dollars in heaven. But the way we handle it, listen to me, the way we handle it will determine our name because nobody in this parable has a name. The rich man's name is his productivity. He has become his pursuit of wealth. His name is rich man. It might be Alex, but that's not what Jesus calls him. It's rich man. He has now become what his pursuit always was. And the manager who, everybody take a deep breath, who in that time was not manager like Michael Scott from the office. He was a household slave who had a higher position than all the other slaves because rich men have slaves. And that person's name was manager. Why? Because that's the name the rich man gave him. 
when we don't break the spell of wealth over our life, we lose our name and then we remove the names of others. We only refer to ourselves as our pursuit and we only refer to others whether or not they are an asset or a liability to our pursuit. See, some of you will say out loud, my name is Bill Dandriano. But right now you're saying, no, your name is liability. Because what you're saying is infringing on my rich man pursuit. And we do this to everybody. Oh, we call them by their, their given name. But really, we, they are liabilities or assets. They're helping us get to where we want to go or they're keeping us from getting there. The way we handle the unfaithful mammon in our life will determine whether or not our name begins to show up. If we're living into our name, Christian, or we're becoming our pursuit. Isn't this great? I was so excited to talk about this. I can't tell you. I like the whole he's going to go get the one out of the 99 messages where like, everybody goes to heaven. I'm not a fan of this one, but you got to teach it. And also, can I just please tell you, this has deeply, deeply convicted my life in many ways. I will not tell you the details of my sin because it's an ongoing investigation and we can't talk about it at this time. But just know there's an ongoing investigation. I'm probably the murderer, right? So just... Here's an important verse for us, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 9. The point is this. Whenever the Bible says that, the point is this. Really, like that's, those are the verses I'll be okay even if you want to get a highlighter out and desecrate your Bible with it. I was flipping through Bill Bernasconi's Bible at the men's meeting, and there was so much pink highlighter in that thing. Lord Jesus, give the man a new Bible and take away all of his highlighters in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And most sermons stop there, but they shouldn't. Each one must, no preacher wants to say this. Everyone loves to preach verse 6. Verse 7 is dangerous. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I have to sit here and say, if hearts are healthy, then people will be giving cheerfully. If hearts are unhealthy, then they won't be giving, and I don't want to make you have to. Because what I want for you is whatever you give, I want it to be the product of the health that is happening in your life. I want your offerings to be true. I don't want them to be fear. I don't want them to be greed. I want them to be true. Right? We as leadership, as deacons and elders and trustees of the church, tasked to take care of not just the church, but the business that is the church, we want to know that what comes in is truly given and not forced or manipulated. That's why nobody gives anymore. No, I'm just kidding. And God is able. Here's the result of your giving. What does reaping abundantly look like? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The result of being generous is not more money back because that's a transaction. That's an investment. And God doesn't love a cheerful investor. 
He loves the cheerful giver. And what he gives in response to our giving is the reality that when we gave, we acted just like Jesus. And that is righteous. And that changes people's hearts when they see the lowly, impoverished character of Christ in us, especially in the violent economic system we live in today. Well, that doesn't sell tapes. I don't want to give money and get righteousness. That means I'm giving money to get more chores. I got to go be nice to people after that. Man, we want to slap our tithe check down on the altar, pull the lever, and hope for three cherries. This is the church. It's not Monticello. It's not Las Vegas. Almost just made a joke and said lost Vegas, but that would be cheesy, so I didn't. Listen, when we are giving our money, people will say, you're giving money to the church? That's a bad idea. It's subversive. It's upside down. It breaks the spell of the financial powers and principalities that exist over our life and the lives of others. But it also opens up generosity in other areas. This is how powerful money is. Jesus talks about money like when you can let go of it, you can then be all the things that the image of Jesus is. But if you hold on to it, you can't be any of those other things. If you can't let go of money, you cannot walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Are you saying that we're buying the fruit of the Spirit? No. When we offer money, we are decluttering the garden so that the fruit of the Spirit can grow. You can go and read Judges, and you can read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, because all the time, high places are built, and when they tear down the high places, the grace of God rushes in. And when they build those high places again, it pushes the grace of God out, because the grace of God is not intrusive. So when we give, it's the same thing as fasting. We're creating space for new, unworldly kingdom things to grow in our life. It's uprooting when we give. It should hurt when we give. Woe to the person who doesn't give at all, and woe to the person who gives so readily, so often, that you forget that the giving hurts. I've had people tell me, Pastor, you know what, man? I finally got to this place where, you know, tithing is like a bill. And I'm like, first of all, don't call me, man. And second of all, second of all, if tithing is now one of your bills... You've got it all wrong. Tithing sets the context for how you view the rest of your bills. Are they enemies or are they opportunities? Are they the worst or are they things that can humble us to walk more lowly with those who don't have? Right? Tithing shouldn't be like one of our bills. It should be a separate, holy, joyful offering. It better not be like one of your bills because I haven't met one person who's like, yes, it's the end of the month. I get to pay all my bills today. I couldn't even sleep last night. I was so excited to pay my bills. I don't want tithing to be in that category of bills. I want it to be in the category of Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, knowing that you are getting your name back as you rid yourself of the mammon that takes your name from you. You can buy a lot with money, but money will also take things from you, like your name. 
if the love of money is the root of all evil, then the love of neighbor is the root of all righteousness. And so when we can take money and bless neighbor, that's righteous. So, coming to a close on this wonderfully positive Sunday, there are three dams that are destroyed when we can let go of our money that we see in this parable. Three dams that are destroyed when we can get rid of our money. When we are able to cheerfully give the way that Jesus said to, there are other things that come unlocked in our life that we see in this parable. We're going to take a quick ride through the, this parable in ways that maybe some of us haven't heard before, so this will be fun. Buckle up. It's going to go upside down. I hope you don't get motion sickness. Please don't puke on the new carpet. Okay. You understand the ADD. Like, it just flies around so much, and then I forget what I'm doing. Preaching. Right, right, right. Number one, the first dam to be destroyed by being faithful with the unrighteous wealth we all have is assumptions. Assumptions. Where does this parable show us that we assume wrong? Are you ready? This is going to be exciting for me, even if it's not exciting for you. I took a lap around the church when I saw this in the text, and then I huffed and puffed for a while, went and got Starbucks, and came back and finished up the sermon. It's called the parable of the dishonest manager, but that's why we can't believe the titles in our Bibles, because they're often wrong. They're often wrong. Like Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. The disciples fed the 5,000. Jesus provided for the 5,000, but he didn't feed them. You did. He put the bread in their hands, and they fed the 5,000. But when people are titling the Bible, they don't want that responsibility. So they call it Jesus feeds the 5,000. So I don't have to. Okay? The parable of the dishonest manager. Why was he dishonest? What did he do wrong? First, it says, now keep in mind, he's a household slave. He has no voice. He has no say. The rich man owns his life. And it says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Everybody say charges. Are charges always right? Are charges a verdict? Well, let me say this. Should charges be a verdict? And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Somebody told you I did something and you're firing me? Can I get a say? Where's human resources at? Do you see how quickly we skip over this? Charges were brought against him, but it doesn't say that those charges were found out. But in those days, slaves didn't have a say. If the manager didn't like what was brought against him, probably by people who had a lot of money, he dismissed them. And what does the man say? Now I have to dig, but I'm too weak to dig. Why? That's the clue. Because slaves who dropped in houses went from household management to outdoor chores. This is proof. And then when he goes to the other people, he says, you owe my master a hundred. He's a slave. And we see here that when you're under the thumb of wealth, you don't even give people a fair hearing. 
And I'm telling you, as much as we don't want to hear this, when we are enchanted by the economy of more and wealth, there are people in our life that we are not hearing. We are taking charges and we're rendering verdicts, but we're not hearing. We're making assumptions about people. I'll give you two. The woman at the well in John 4. Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a... And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with is not your husband. And what do we read? We read it like middle-class Americans, like she's got a boyfriend in the loft departments in Beacon or something. It never says she slept around. What if all five died? Because in Jewish culture, if a woman cheated on a husband, no one else would have married her before other guys obviously did. But we run right to infidelity when we hear it. Because we assume and we judge. Why? Because we are under the spell of deciding who should be on top and who should be on bottom. She is obviously a woman of the night, so she's not one of the righteous ones. She must have been a prostitute. But it never says that. As a matter of fact, she has so much goodwill in the community that when she goes and tells the entire village that a man showed up, they don't say what else is new. They run and meet him because she has a high position in that village. But we assume. And when we always assume the worst of somebody, it's because we are under the spell and enchantment of wealth looking to see who the most equitable people are, looking to see who the most fertile soil for investment is. It's why James has to say, don't you dare show preferential treatment to the wealthy when they come in. That's one, the woman at the well. I'll give you one more. There's tons. The older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, what does he say to the father? Your, your son, the younger brother, he has squandered your inheritance with prostitutes. It doesn't say that. So how does he know that? Either he saw his younger brother with prostitutes and didn't help, or he's lying. But either way, he's making an assumption that the text gives us no reason to assume. You could squander money in a lot of ways that aren't with prostitutes. Like me going to Starbucks all the time. They're new apple crisp. Let me tell you, the toasted vanilla apple crisp shaken latte venti is delicious. It's almost like speaking in tongues when you say it that way. We can squander our money a lot of, a lot of dumb ways. But do you see how quickly these assumptions are made? And right away, we assume that this guy was dishonest. Let me show you how else he wasn't dishonest. He's fired without a hearing. Charges are brought to him. We don't know if they're right. He's fired right away. So what does he do? He somehow has to break the power over him. He somehow has to break the power of his wealthy owner. And he does. Because when the parable ends, the rich man commends him. And says, hey, maybe I was wrong about you. What did he do? He did one of two things. He went to them and said, Paul, you owe 100 just give me 80. The two best answers for this I heard, one was he wrote off his own commission. I'm just going to give back what is owed to my guy. 
and I'm going to get rid of what's owed to me because I might need this guy one day. Okay? Or, and I love this one, in Jewish culture, you weren't allowed to exact interest over people. So he wrote off the interest that the rich man was illegally charging. And now the rich man can't condemn him for it because then he'd have to admit guilt. Broke the power of it. So what is he left to do? He's, all he's left to do is say, good call. Shh. Don't tell anybody about this. Good call, though. Hey, by the way, I wrote off all that illegal interest you were charging. So what you're going to do, the media is right outside. And the guy's like, this is my guy. Oh, he's such a good manager. I was wrong about him. Noogie, oh, man, come on in. He broke the power by being subversive. He was completely honest. You know why? Because when you're dishonest to a dishonest system, you're telling the truth. Oh, fine. I'll give an example. Just off the top of my head. Not that I had 30 of them. Rebecca, when she told Jacob to dress up like Esau, she was being dishonest to a dishonest system, therefore bringing the truth. Because the Lord said the younger will serve the older. So she was dishonest to a dishonest system in a way that brought the truth to bear. That means she's honest. The midwives, Pharaoh says, man, when they start having Hebrew boys, kill them. And what do the midwives say? Oh, the Hebrew women are so powerful. They overpower us. They're even powerful when they're giving birth. And Pharaoh's like, all right, cool. I don't want anything to do with that. Great. Great. They lied. But they were dishonest to a dishonest system and therefore brought the truth. Rahab. Are those spies here? No. Were they there? Yes. She was dishonest to a dishonest system and therefore she was honest. It's a little complicated. But it breaks the power of the evil. It breaks it. The rich man is no, he's, he's becoming warm, right? He's like the Grinch when he's starting to enjoy the music of Whoville at the end. He's like, oh man, my guys are good. Why, why am I feeling warm towards him? Why, why am I complimenting him? What's happening to me? I hate this. What is falling from my eyes? It's not raining. All right. So when we're willing to be generous financially, we also become generous with our assumptions. And guess what? The world needs us to be generous about what we assume of them. Because the person that you think is the worst is going through a hell that you would never want to go through making them act that way. And we cannot just assume. But our inability to judge rightly is associated with the way that we handle our money. Next, our methods. This one's a little easier and less intense. I'll give you a breather, a break. Desiree, it reminds me of like your, your aerobics class that time when you gave no breaks. I was sweating and I was sitting there watching. We're generous with our assumptions. This parable also destroys a dam that blocks generous generosity with our methods. This guy is now in what uh, uh, therapists call a season of stress. To oversimplify, there's seasons of stress and seasons of growth in all of our lives. 
And when you're in a season of growth, you should be very hard on yourself. When you're in a season of health and growth, that's when you buckle down. That's when you run the extra mile. That's when you give a little more. That's when you add disciplines to your life. But when you're in a season of stress, it's you have to take off some of those burdens so that you can breathe. But we tend to do the opposite. When we are in a season of growth, we tend to get really lax and we destroy our season of growth. And when we're in a season of stress, we tend to get too hard on ourselves and others and we end up choking ourselves out because we couldn't breathe to begin with. So when this man was in a season of stress, what did he do? He loosened the bonds of what people owed. He, any one of us would have been like, I'm about to get fired. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get my master more money than he's owed. You owe 100, Anthony, I want you to pay me 110. Otherwise, I'm going to send you know, the debtor's police to your house. We would double down on discipline and try to get more, but he loosens up in a season of stress and says, let me just get something done. And the rich man commends him for it. So when people around you are in a season of stress, especially when you love them dearly, Loosen up when they're in a season of stress and double down on them when they're in a season of health. Because a season of health without boundaries will destroy you as fast as a season of stress with too many boundaries. Learn, this is something we need to learn, all of us. In times of chaos, do we loosen others or do we strangle them? Because what is our impulse? Oh, our kids aren't behaving. More rules. Stricter this, stricter that. Control. But when you control, you're asking the person to break free from you. Sophia's downstairs. Good. But when, when I'm like, Sophia, can, can, dad, can, we, can we snuggle? No. It's okay. Fine. We don't ever have to snuggle again. Daddy, Wait. Loosen sometimes brings people closer. Is it manipulative? Meh. Mez a mez. You know? I got an hour and 20 minutes before my boys come on TV. So here we go. We, when we're generous and open handed financially, we break the dams of assumption, of methods, and of power, of power. The most confu- one of the most confusing things that Jesus says in this parable is, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, the money, they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. What? What Jesus is saying is unbelievably simple. He's saying the people that don't have now, that have no position and no place and are constantly under the thumb of the wealthy rich man systems, they're going to be the ones opening doors for you one day. You're the ones who can open doors for them now. They're going to be the ones in my kingdom that open doors for you. So you better cozy up to them now. Because the people that you think are under your thumb now, they're going to be the ones to receive you into their homes then. Because the first shall be and the last shall be. 
generosity, almsgiving, almsgiving tilts and breaks the power that says I'm up here and you're down there. See, what the, what the power says is I'm up here and you're down there. But the evil behind it is saying because you're down there, I get to be up here. And in heaven, there will be none of that. And the people that we treated like garbage are going to be praying for us and begging God to open doors for us. Well, how do you know that? Because it's one of the previous parables in Luke chapter 12. Luke talks about the rich man, the rich fool in Luke 12. He talks about the rich man here in 16. And then a couple chapters later, I think it's Luke 19, he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And in the rich man and Lazarus story, the rich man had a lot. He treated Lazarus, his servant, like garbage. They died, and the rich man was in Hades, and Lazarus was in heaven. And Lazarus is saying, please, can I go serve him? Because that's how righteous the people that have been under the system are now and will be fully seen to be that way then. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Some of you in this room, and if we could have the worship team begin to make their way up here. Some of you in this room right now, you actually are the ones underneath the thumb of America's financial system. And you've said to yourself a lot, especially this year, I'm never going to get out from under it. And I want you to know, you are more holy. Than, Stephanie already said it. You are more holy in your suffering than you could ever possibly imagine. And one day, everyone is going to see that holiness. When the system of the world denies you rights that you deserve to have, you are holy because Jesus says, man, they denied me too. You are in good company. And you will be fully seen one day to be as holy as you are now. Your story is not over. Not only will you get out from under it, but you will be the one opening the doors for the ones who put you down there. And some of us here, myself included, at the moment, are those who have the means and are okay and do walk around this world when we wake up in the morning in a world that's a little easier for me than it is for some other people. And it is incumbent upon us to beg the Holy Spirit to break the enchantment of that privilege so that we can be generous the way that Jesus was. Generous not to show our own virtue, but generous to help people get up. Generous to help people not only stand up, but stay up. And not only stay up, but move forward in their life. Some of us can open doors, and we better open them and hold them open. You ever get into that awkward moment where you hold the door open for somebody, and then there's somebody who's close enough where you have to hold the door, but they're far away, it's going to be 10 minutes? Some of us always have the door open for us. I think about it every single Sunday. If we're in the middle of worship service and I realize I need to go get a pen or I need to get a book or I need to write something down and I go to leave here, somebody always opens the door for me. I don't think I've ever opened a door for myself on a Sunday. And you know what? There's, there's an element of respect to that, but honestly, that should scare the daylights out of me. And if you're the kind of person where when you walk onto the job, people are opening doors for you, please understand, 
please understand that you have to make sure that that doesn't cast a spell on you. Like that's something you earned because you did the things that Jesus said to do. That's happening in your life because you're fortunate, not because you're blessed. And we have to give of our fortune. I don't, cannot believe I'm going to bring this up right now, but in the, in the, in the play Jesus Christ Superstar, okay? in the song of Pilate, I'm going to talk to Dream because we, are, we, we like the Broadway plays. In this, in this Pilate song, Jesus is on his hands and knees, and Pilate walks out and says, who is this broken man cluttering up my hallway? Who is this unfortunate? And then somebody says, I don't know, someone, Christ, King of the Jews. Pilate looks at him and says, who is this unfortunate man? Pilate, you are looking at fortune when you look at him. He is what fortune looks like. You and your palace and your guards and all that other stuff are making you think he's unfortunate. But really, you are bound and there's dams built up and you need a dam to burst on your assumptions and your methods and your power because that man that you're calling unfortunate, he is your fortune. And then for most of us in the room, we have inside of us all at once the rich man and the household manager, the rich man and the ones who are buried down. And we need to pray that God would give us generous hearts so that we can break the enchantment of the rich man in us. Because the rich man in us has such a clever way of slapping a few scriptures onto our greed and making us think that it's good. I want to leave this very unresolved, so we will stop there. When we come to the table of the Lord, I cannot emphasize this enough. We are coming to the poverty of God. Stephanie said it today. She preached the whole message. In just a few words, they would love you to preach every Sunday. We love to say that he who, be, who, he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. And immediately we filter those words through our suburban, contemporary, western financial mindset. What is the rich that we become? The rich we become is the freedom to not need to be rich and still love my life. See, I wanted them to hear that. The freedom to not need to do more to feel safer. The freedom to not need to save a dollar more to feel like my future is intact. The freedom to suffer and still know that I'm free. That's wealth in the kingdom. And what blocks us from that wealth is money. Our view and our hold, ah, I'm going to rephrase that, our view and the hold that money has on us. See, we never have money. It has us or we're free. It says, well, I have $100 in my pocket. Maybe. Or maybe that $100 bill is saying, I got a whole person in my pocket. 
we're coming to a table where we approach the poverty of God. God in broken fragments, as lowly and unpopular as a wafer, a dry wafer. I've been in this room hungry on a Wednesday, and these are still there, and I'm like, that's not even, I don't even want to eat them. This is nothing meal. This meal would not make a hungry person stuffed. This meal doesn't end world hunger. You know what it does? It destroys the systems that cause world hunger. Because in this meal, we step into the poverty of God. The God who was so free, he didn't count equality with the Father as something to use to his own advantage. So free to say, take my life. But guess what? You can't take it because I already gave it. That's generosity. That's how we should be viewing. Our money represents all those other things. That's how powerful the dollar bill is. It represents the way we assume, the methods we enact on each other, the power that we wield. The way that we, I'm, I'm telling you right now, there are some in this room where you're, you've lost your name and your name now is the pursuit you're involved in right now. You are your productivity. And that is a dangerous place to be. And I'm not just talking about people who are out working. I'm also talking about people who are home. Some of us don't want to be defined by being home. And so we settle for being defined by other pursuits. Some of us feel like all I am, all I am is just a mom. I just, I'm my kids and that's it. I have no identity, no life. And when they're gone, who will I be? You will always be and always have been the person that God made you to be and you're more than just that productivity. You're more than just that productivity. And specifically to moms, never, ever reduce yourself to just mom. It is blood, sweat, tears, and things that us men will never know about if we lived a million lifetimes, what it means to be a mom. It's not just anything. It's the calling that God gave Mary. Holy Spirit, I pray that all the thoughts going through my mind that I could stay here until 4 o'clock talking about I pray right now that if anyone needs to hear in this moment right now where they have lost their name into a pursuit, I pray that you would make this atmosphere for the next five or ten minutes easy to discern your voice. And so as we come to the table, please reveal to all of us, as we discern the body, as we come to the table, please reveal to all of us where we might be losing our name and where our generosity needs to be located. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed, you took bread. And when you had given thanks, when you looked at brokenness, you were so free from the stranglehold of productivity and fame and celebrity and money that you were able to look down at broken bread and say, thank you. You notice when Jesus fed the 5,000, he never asked the Father for more bread. He just gave thanks. 
he was okay with his lack. You looked at the bread and you said, this is my body, which is fully offered to you. As long as you come to this table, receive this bread to be remembered to me, to take on my life of generosity. And after supper, you took the cup of wine and after giving thanks, you said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for those who are never going to add a single thing to my life. It's shed for them too for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you come to this table, be remembered to me. Take on my life and live that generosity. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend on this bread today, that it might become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him, and descend on us right now that we would see clearly where we're losing our name and where our generosity needs to be located. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Be on our mind. Be in our heart. And be over our entire body and the bodies of those we interact with this week. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. I'm going to ask, as always, I'm going to ask Elder Ron if he would have one of the plates over here. And I'm going to ask Elder George if he would have one of the plates over here. And if you need to take a moment at the altar, if you need to stand in the presence of God, if you just need that moment, please, after you receive, take that moment, but continue to worship with us this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.